So even though we're studying just eight verses tonight, there's quite a lot of content to cover. So we have to kickstart. We're going to start, um, we're going to read Romans chapter 12, verses one to eight. Um, and I need someone to volunteer to read for me tonight, for us tonight. Um, anyone wants to volunteer? Okay, so before we get started, um, just a bit of background once again. Um, so the foundation of the universality of the gospel is what Paul has laid in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And Paul believes that what he's presenting is the gospel of God. And so he believes that it's a universal gospel, meaning that it's, it's the same gospel that was preached in the Old Testament, so it applies to Jews. And it's also a gospel that reaches out to Gentiles so that no one is left out of the gospel. And I think from up until perhaps chapter eight of the book, it was pretty much very clear to us how, how the gospel applied to you and I, who, whom the Jews would consider as Gentiles. But it wasn't clear what the continuity was, right, between what God promised to Abraham, to David, and to the patriarchs of the Old Testament, and what we find in the New Testament. But Romans chapter 11 is what um, puts the whole um, conversation together and brings it full circle. And Paul showed us that um, Israel's blindness is only serving as a reason for many Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. And that when that goal is accomplished, all Israel, according to Paul, will be saved. Um, and that just exposes us to the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. Like we said last week, um, things are never as terrible as they look because in the midst of the worst um, betrayal of the gospel, if you like, even in the midst of that, God reserves for himself a remnant and he works out his purposes. And I hope that was able to give us some confidence and some strength from last week. So now that Paul has basically established the universality of the gospel, what's happening in Romans chapter 12 all the way down to chapter 16 is that um, he's now beginning to wrap up the letter. And what, the way he does that is to highlight what our response should be after we have known and believed all the wonderful truths that he has shared with us. So another way to, um, to I guess, another theme that you can apply to Romans chapter 12 is um, basically, you can say it's how to disciple someone who is new to the faith, because that's basically what Paul is doing. Now that you have believed, now that you have um, understood everything that Jesus came to do and you have accepted it, what are the next steps? Is this all that there is? Romans chapter 12 covers what you might call the weightier matters of the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus used that term in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, when he was berating the Pharisees and the scribes and saying that, hey, you like you pay tight up to a mint and you do all of this superficial stuff, but you miss out on the weightier matters of the kingdom. And then he listed out three things that he considers to be the weightier matters of the law. And so this is what Romans chapter 12 is. In view of everything that God has done, Paul is trying to shine the light back on the weightier matters, the things that everyone who has come to Christ and has accepted this gospel must pay attention to. And that's why we pick it up today in Romans chapter 12. So we'll read only verse one and make some commentaries on that. Steph? Romans chapter 12, living sacrifices to God, chapter one, um, verse one. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Okay. And if I may ask, what do you notice in this scripture is the first um, heavy molecule of the kingdom of God? What is the first weighty matter of the kingdom of God that, that Paul highlights in verse 1? What's the first thing that Paul expects us not to miss out on? That if we lose sight of this principle, the rest of our journey in Christianity might be flawed and out of alignment with the perfect will of God. There's something in the chat. The mercies of God. Ah, that's from Stephanie. Yeah, the mercies of God. That's the first weighty molecule or weighty matter, as it were, of the kingdom of God. And so we've, we've, as we've looked at it, there's none of us that could have been saved by our own good works. So the mercy of God as it regards the gospel is the sovereign kindness of God. That kindness that he bestows upon us when he chooses us. And you see, if we neglect the principle of God's mercy, then we have no recourse in the kingdom because our salvation by principle is by grace. And this is important to understand because Paul expects that the basis of our consecration to God will be our love for him. That based on his mercies, we will consecrate ourselves to God. You see, when, when God saves us by his mercy, he leaves a token of that love in our hearts. Do you remember Romans 5 verse 5? Um, hope does not make a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So the way you know you are saved by mercy is that after you are saved, there's a deposit of the love of God that is, that is placed in your heart. And it is that love that, that makes you passionate about the things of God. It's that love that brings you to a place where you are willing to be a living sacrifice. It's important to highlight this because over the years, we have kind of inverted the flow, um, especially with what you might call, what you might call the holiness movement, where we have said that, you know, you have to be holy in order to love God. But the real flow is that it's the mercies of God, if you understand it and if you put it always before you, that inspires a life of consecration unto him. Um, and of course, when, when we lose this love in his intensity, in his first intensity, that's what Jesus means by you've lost your first love. It's when we lose this love that, um, that we begin to see the, the proliferation of things like lust, our fire begins to die down and everything else that could eventually quench the faith of someone begins to happen. You see, when we pray for revival and you hear us crying to God for revival in the church, maybe in Nigeria or even in, the, or even in Europe or in the world at large, um, my understanding when I pray those prayers and sing those songs and have those desires is, is for God to really bring the church back to the place where we truly love him, where we rediscover that first, that first love, that first thing motion, that first strong desire, because everything else is going to build on top of it. You know, everything else that we pray for, that it's supposed to accompany revival, all of those things are built on the foundation of a heart that is burning with love for God. It's when we love him that we also begin to love his presence. And as we begin to love his presence, he begins to deposit things upon us. And it's those things that lead to the manifestations that we see on the outside. So Paul is imploring his, 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 um, his readers here and he's saying basically take note of the mercy of God 
No, let it be what drives you. Let it be your motivation. And anytime you, you just notice that your motivation for the things of God are beginning to go down and you don't seem to have the ability to spend time in his presence and to enjoy it, it it's time to recalibrate and check your love for him and just ask him to revive it. He says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. And then the second part says that what I'm beseeching you to do is that you should present your bodies in living sacrifice. You see, um, this passage is very practical, right? Because God does not ask anything more of us to do but to offer him our bodies. Now, some of us want to offer God so much. We want to offer him our finance. We want to offer him uh, maybe our talent, especially our, our time. The primary thing God asks for is that we give him a body. Because if you understand the way the earthly realm is, is structured, that's the only weakness God has in relating to the earth. The Bible says that God is spirit. And if you look at the way the earth is created, the earth is created for three-dimensional beings, people who have a body. For you to be able to operate on the earth, you need a body of earth. If not, you might be everywhere, but people cannot relate to you because you have no body. And in the gospel, God is looking for bodies that he can feel so that those bodies can express him. Um, and Paul is saying that our destiny is to be a living sacrifice. That's actually what God wants to produce out of our lives. Um, I don't know if you remember Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul took us back to the study of creation. And he said that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. See, I came to tell you tonight that your destiny, my destiny, is to be a living sacrifice. Um, that's where God is going. And he's not going to relent in his love until you are literally a sacrifice that is alive. Anything that is short of that goal, <laughs> from what Paul is saying here, it may not even be acceptable to God. And so that's why he keeps pouring out his love so that we can be reasonable to get to that place where our lives is a living sacrifice. Um, and if I may ask, why do you think the body is so important in this context? Because, you know, we're always used to hearing things like, okay, offer yourself to God. But, you know, offer yourself to God sounds very broad and very vague and not practical enough. But Paul points right to the issue. He says, in case you're thinking of what to do for God, begin with your body. Right? Give it, give him your body. Anyone has a view about this? Why do you think the body is important to God? What? I mean, considering that the body is going to die and be left behind, right? And we're going to have a new body. Why do you think it's important? Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking that this is it, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I know I can't say it. I'm sorry. It's somebody else made me. So it's weird. No, just say uh, what you have in mind. Well, I mean, when you said why is the body important, you know that part of the Bible that says the body has not prepared for me, burnt offering and sacrifices for me. you had no pleasure, but mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm quoting the right verse. Yeah. <clears throat> but it is for us to do his will. That's I'm drawing it from Hebrew, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, Hebrews chapter 10, yeah. Yes. So that verse that says a body has not prepared for me. But why, and is, why is the next 
to do your will, to do his will here on earth. So thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It is a body he needs for that will to be done. That's why I'm just, sorry. I'm not sure. I think that's the correct answer, but it's still a bit spiritually high up there, you know, to do his will. We're going to see what that means in verse two. But the answer is correct in principle, but if you want to even tone it down to, um, I guess, the natural use of the body. Because if you remember in Romans chapter, in Romans chapter um, eight, when Paul told us to be renewed in our minds, we said that the reason for that is because the mind is a seat of mastery. And so what you do with your mind is very important. And in Romans chapter 10, when we looked at what it truly means to be saved and how to truly be saved, we looked at the heart, right? And we said the heart is a seat of conviction. Anything that doesn't reach your heart and affect your life cannot, sorry, and affect your heart cannot change your life. So even if you confess a prayer that Jesus is Lord, but that confession did not come from the conviction of your heart, God, God is not bound to honor such a prayer, right? Because the heart is a seat of conviction. And the body is the altar of expression, right? Is a, is a seat of expression. And like we have said, God needs an outlet on earth. He needs a way to express himself. If, if imagine, imagine the nation you're in, let's say you're in the United Kingdom or you're in Germany or you're, or, or you're in Sweden, if God needs to offer prayers for that land, he needs your vocal cords. He needs your, he needs your vocal capacity to offer that prayer. The body is a seat of expression. So what the body does is that it expresses the desires that are in the soul. So if there is lust in your soul, right? Because Jesus said that it's not really what goes into a man that defiles him, meaning that sometimes you can come into a season of your life where, where there's just lust in your soul and you don't know where it came from. And Jesus says, it's not even that that defiles you. It's what you give expression to. It's what comes out of him that defiles you. So sometimes he, they can be lost in your soul. And if you give expression to, to it, it means that you have, you have decided to place more value on, on that lust and on the love of God that is in your heart. And also your body can be, the, can be the medium of expression of the love of God that is in your heart. So that's why, that's why the body is important. Um, and that's why God wants it, is a seat of expression. If you are born again and you're saved and, re, and you refuse to use your body for God in any way, God cannot get any profit from your life. He cannot get any fruit from your life. He cannot use your life to, to bring another to Christ until your body becomes a living sacrifice. And again, because saying that our bodies are a living sacrifice, again, could sound, could sound very high. If you bring it down, you, know, you tell yourself, okay, what do I do with my eyes? what I look at, and not just what I look at, how I look, right? When I offer that to God, then it becomes a sacrifice of love, you know? You know, Jesus said that, you have, you have heard it said that if you commit adultery with a woman, if you sleep with a woman that's not your wife, you've committed adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust after her, so some people have read that scripture and forgotten the second part, and they are, and their motto is, we don't even look at women. But Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her. So it's not just what you look at, but how you look at it. It's not just what you say. Of course, what you say is very important, but how you say it. It's not just what you hear, like Jesus said, but take heed how you hear. When you commit those faculties to God, 
that becomes a living sacrifice. You know, when you wake up in the morning, what do you do with your body? Like many people begin to pursue different things, but the moment you decide to separate yourself and say, this is the first fruit of my, of my 24 hours and I give it to you in worship. That's a living sacrifice. You have, you have offered your body because you had the choice, you had control over what to do with your morning hours. Okay. And just to touch on this point, because Paul calls this kind of sacrifice a living sacrifice. And like we have said earlier, it means that God's intended purpose for us is that um, all of us should become a living sacrifice. That's the goal he's going after. And you might ask, why does God need a living sacrifice? <clears throat> a living sacrifice is infinitely more valuable to God. And the reason for that is that even though it's a sacrifice, it does not die. After it has been sacrificed, it goes on living. And so it has... It has the capability to express the will of God, like um, Stephanie mentioned earlier. So in the Old Testament, they were sacrificing dead animals. And as expensive as your animal was, the problem with the sacrifice was that it was dead. Um, or, and some people also just sacrifice their money, you know, or their skills. Those things are good, but God cannot make use of them. The reason God wants a living sacrifice is that after it is placed on the altar, it is still alive and it uses that life to prosecute the will of God. So he calls it a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Friends, our one goal should be to arrive at this place of total surrender of our bodies, where we recognize that my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that I've been, I've been betrothed to Christ, I've been engaged as it were, I've received the engagement papers, through the indwelling spirit to belong to Christ. And so my body is his only outlet of expression, is the only place where he can find rest on the earth and to keep it holy. Paul says that it's your reasonable service. The reason the word reasonable exists here is that it's a, it's a thing that you do out of love. You don't do it because you fear that God is going to cast you into hell if you don't do it. Because like we have seen in the arrangement of the new covenant, there's no condemnation but you do it out of love, out of reason. And God is patient enough with, with us. He waits for us long enough until we arrive at that place where we are reasonable because he's the one who willingly gives himself that is infinitely valuable to God. You know, God could have created robots who just do his will. I don't know if you've used any kind of technology like Google Maps before. It does not have an emotion of itself. If you tell Google Maps, I want to go to the Vatican in Rome, and then it tells you, okay, this is the route that you need to take to the Vatican. And then it starts directing you. And then you now stop somewhere to buy shawarma and then another place to buy ice cream. And then you start roaming around. It does not get upset. <laughs> it just keeps redirecting the route. When you're finally ready to go to Vatican, it's also ready waiting for you. It, it, it's, a, it's a robot and you cannot have any meaningful connection or relationship or even impact with that kind of device. But God wants reasonable service, a service that was born out of good reason. So this is what Paul says is the first heavy molecule of the kingdom of God. The mercy of God, the love of God is supposed to lead you to the place of sacrifice. Okay, because every genuine love will always end up on the altar of sacrifice. Any love that doesn't sacrifice is a love that is plain. It's not real love. 
genuine love will always lead you to the altar of sacrifice. Okay. So any comments about this before we go to verse two? Any comments, a question or contribution? Okay. So verse two, Stephanie. Right, verse two. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, yeah. So, so let's take this step by step again. First of all, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, right? If you check the world here, this is not the cosmos, meaning this is not re referring to the world as you see, the world of trees and animals and things. This is referring to the aeon, like the Greek word here is the aeon. Um, the English word, which was borrowed from, from German for this word here is the, is the zeitgeist, which you can call the spirit of the age, the mindset of the age. Paul says, don't be conformed to it. Um, because we have talked about presenting our bodies to God. And the first challenge to presenting your body to God is the zeitgeist, is the spirit of the age. Because when you look around in your generation, in whatever generation you live in, you'll discover that the path that God is recommending for you is not the popular path. It doesn't, if not that you have the word of God, you wouldn't even discern that this was the right thing to do, to present your body. Of course, we must place this scripture in its original context, which is that Paul was writing to the Romans. He was writing to like we're going to see, or like we've seen so far, a majorly Gentile church that had some Jews in them. And these Gentiles were most likely Romans. Um, so these people were, 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 if you like, slaves to the thinking, to the aeon, the zeitgeist of their generation, which basically was undergoing a kind of sexual revolution, just like our generation is also undergoing a kind of sexual revolution. And it was very normal and acceptable in the Roman Empire to be promiscuous. And so that was the zeitgeist, that was the thinking of that age. And Paul was saying that I need you to shun that zeitgeist. I need you to shun that way of thinking. Um, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I'm sure when you look at our generation, especially for those of us in Europe, you will see that there is a, there is a spirit of the age. The spirit of the age, that doesn't necessarily mean it's spiritual. It just means that it is the, it is a thing that is in vogue. And there's nothing wrong with something being in vogue. It's just that when you test it, you will discover that um, that thing that is in vogue might not be the will of God. I've met friends who told me that um, when they tell their colleagues that they're in a relationship with someone, but they don't live in the same house, it's a bit shocking for a lot of people in this, in this culture and in this generation. So that's the kind of culture that Paul was speaking to, that because your body is so important, and, and I like the focus on the body because it really makes it practical that this is what God is interested in because the temptation you face is going to be in your body. And the first challenge is the zeitgeist. And Paul says that the way to deal with this issue is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? In the Greek, again, there's more than one word for transformed. And the word here is metamorpho which you, can, you know from the English word metamorphosis. It's a transformation that happens from inside out, right? There's another Greek word for transform, which is metaschizomato. That's what the Bible uses of Satan when Paul says that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. That kind of transformation happens from the, from the outward. So, you know, people recommend to you a dress code, for example, 
that or some kind of external makeup that um, tries to conform you into a certain mode so that if you dress like this, then you are holy. <laughs> if you don't dress like this, then you're not holy. That's not the kind of transformation that Paul is speaking of because the problem with that kind of transformation is that it is carnal. And what that means is that it cannot help the inward man. It cannot, it, it, it's very external. And like we said, anything that doesn't touch your heart cannot affect your life. There's nothing wrong with dressing with the longest skirt possible, for example, as long as that conviction is rooted in your heart and not in some kind of external makeup. Paul says this is not the answer to the aeon. This is not the answer to the zeitgeist. The answer to the zeitgeist is something that happens inside out. Another possibility which people are floating in our generation, in the, in the generation of rationalism, you know, is the possibility of education that, oh, you know, all of our problems are because we over-spiritualized things in the past. Um, and we, if we can just educate people, right? Again, education is futile if an inward activity does not happen. Like we've always said, if someone is, is a thief by nature and you educate a thief, what you're just simply going to create is an educated thief, right? Education becomes necessary when the kingdom within has been adjusted. That's why Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within you. That's where it begins. That's where the activity begins. So the way to, um, to, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind is by adjusting the value set of the kingdom within through intimacy with the Holy Spirit and by seeking out the righteousness of the kingdom through intimacy with the Holy Spirit and seeking out the righteousness of the kingdom. So focus on adjusting the value set. If you're struggling with something, right? And you say, okay, for example, um, I'm struggling with, with masturbation. And I know that anytime, I, anytime I'm done with this thing, it makes me feel filthy and dirty. It's possible for you to go to google.com and check what the met metaschizamato for, for for quitting masturbation is. And of course, if you've tried that search before, you're going to realize that 99.9% .9 of the articles you find will encourage you that you are totally fine continuing in that. But what Paul is saying is a metamorphosis. What you do is that you first of all begin by, by, by um, tracing the value set of the kingdom. What, does, what, is the, what is the mind? What's the righteousness of the kingdom concerning this thing? You find it in the scriptures. You fellowship with it. Remember that this is your mind that, put, that you're dealing with. And we said that the mind is the seat of mastery. So mastery does not happen in one day, which is why it's possible that a Christian can have a struggle for a long time. But the, but the pathway remains the same, that the transformation happens from inside out. And of course, the natural question that follows is, okay, fine, I want to align, you know, in seeking to align with the righteousness of the kingdom of God, how do I know what the will of God is, right? If you take the example of your body, Paul says, present your body, but let's say I'm in a relationship, like how far is too much with my body? And even beyond issues of my body, how do I ensure that the rest of my life um, is indeed a living sacrifice? And if you have noticed in this scripture, you, you'll see that the next heavy molecule of the kingdom of God after the mercies of God is the will of God. And Paul says, I want you to prove, mark this word, prove. I want you to prove what is that good and acceptable um, and perfect will of God. 
before we, we dive into this one, do you have any questions about this or comments? Sorry, Joshua, about what? About the question of the will of God. Oh, yeah. I mean, I keep hearing things about the permissible will of God, permissible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know there's good, as in this good, acceptable, and perfect. Is it the good, better, best? Or I don't actually understand what I'm saying. Exactly. Okay. That, that's, that's actually where we're going next, which is that there are actually two ways that you can read the scripture, right? So, so um, the first way that you can read the scripture is the way that, that Stephanie has said, which is that you can say there is the good will of God, then there is the acceptable will of God, and then there is the perfect will of God. So some people say in marriage, you know, you can meet someone and that person is a good will of God. You can meet another person, that person is more acceptable. <laughs> but then there is the perfect will of God for you in marriage. Um, and I'm not denying that, that there is not some truth in this kind of interpretation. There is definitely some truth in this kind of interpretation because, first of all, our maturity levels in the kingdom is not always where God wants it to be. And so sometimes to help us, God accepts our prayer, even though it wasn't perfect. You know, God accepts our petition, even though it's not really exactly the perfect thing that, that he would have expected. We have seen it several in scripture, how God deals with men. And he didn't deal with any perfect man. Sometimes he permitted certain things, even though those things were not necessarily good, but ultimately those things were going to fit into his bigger picture. Um, so even though our prayer is not often perfect, perfect prayer still exists. It's just that our prayer is not often perfect. So this is the first level of interpretation, which a, which a lot of people hold on to, which is fine. My preferred interpretation of the scripture, however, is the second one, which is that the will of God is good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. The difference is just our own level of experience and perception of the will of God. Often our discernment be, like, begins with just good. When God says, okay, this is the person I want you to get married to, or something more serious, or I want you to move to this nation or this city, we're like, okay, we can pray and say, okay, it pleases God for this to happen. We don't necessarily see at that point that this is perfect. We just know that it's good based on the convictions that God has planted in our hearts. And based on that, we're, like, we take the journey. And then we face a lot of obstacles but after a while we say okay this is not just good it's actually acceptable <laughs> this was the right thing for me at the right time if you look back in your history as a christian the things that you try to pray out of your life they actually turned out to be the right thing at the right time but in the grand scheme of things and usually at the end of things the only testimony you have if you truly walked in the will of god was that this was perfect anything that god willed for me as long as i follow through with it you will find out at the end of the day that it was the perfect thing for you. You couldn't have found it like a better path if you were asked to choose. Um, and you see, whichever interpretation of this scripture that you choose to take, whether the first one or the second one, what I want us to focus on and what matters and what Paul is trying to express in this scripture is that um, he says you may prove that you may prove. So, the will of God is something that you have to prove. 
And this is the part I think that is not emphasized enough. There is a process by which you prove the will of God. And basically prove means here, discern, find out. Paul does not expect that you will just pray a short prayer and suddenly you know exactly what to do. Even if you have such an experience, he still wants you to prove it. Because, because the faculty that you're going to use to discern the will of God is your renewed mind. And the level at which your mind has been renewed is different because as you grow in Christ and as you mature in Christ, your mind is renewed progressively so that you have better understanding and a bigger picture, right? At different times in your work with God. So if you say today that I heard this thing and I'm very sure it's the will of God, you have to factor in the fact that in your thinking, you're at a certain place in your work with God. And so that means that you have to prove that way. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Um, sorry, Joshua, I'm, I'm, I'm probably being a nuisance this evening, but you know that when you're proving something, it's like you have to doubt it in the process. You know that, right? Yes, yes. God has and no problem with that at all. Because, you know, it's like when God says something, you just have to believe and go on with it. But this proof part, I mean... When you see proving and, you know, we'll be scientific things are proved and proved. It's like, there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of guess. There's a lot of navigation here and there. And then at the end of the day, you might not even, it might not be it. So yeah. I was wondering, it's kind of. Strange. Yeah, exactly. Like, like the right question is, how do you prove a spiritual thing, right? Because the way you prove a spiritual thing is not the way you prove scientific thing, right? In science, you may want to um, get a questionnaire and take a sample, and then you may want statistical significance with your data set, right? And, and so even though your data is moving in one direction, you might say, but only 20,000 people responded and they are all female, so there's some bias in it. <laughs> That's not how you prove spiritual things. Spiritual things can be discerned. You know, we talked about that word discernment last week, that the cement is like taking a knife and cutting through. It's, it's sharp, it's direct. It just it separates black from white instantly. Um, and there are certain things that you look at as you try to prove the will of God. And I can just go through them very quickly, right? The first one is that does what I'm hearing line up with the self-revelation of God in the written word of God, in the logos? Because what we have as the scriptures is the self-revelation of God. It's God who, who met those men and revealed himself and their experiences and their prophecies and their teachings was what was chronicled as scripture. The Bible says that, that that prophecy did not come of the will of man. It was not, it's not as though Isaiah sat in his room and said, hmm, what can I write today? No, that's how people write books these days. Because they're like, hmm, this, this topic is trending on data privacy. Let me ask for funding to do a data privacy research and write a book. Oh, and, 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 and the scripture says that's not how the scriptures were written. They came Sorry, by. Sorry, can I ask? Mm -hmm. Okay, can I ask a question now when you are done with this particular one? Yeah, just hold your question for a bit. Okay. Right. Um, so, scripture did not come by the will of man. And that's why sometimes, you, like, you read some very difficult prophecies in scripture that are so hard to understand. Some people's approach to, to those kind of scriptures is that they just allegorize it and say, you know, God cannot really mean this. But <laughs> scripture did not come of the will of man. If you're going to be an accurate teacher 
or an accurate prophet. You're going to need to accept that fact and remove your own will from it and deal with what is in front of you, right? And so that's why you have to always check that what I'm feeling in my heart, does it line up with the self-revelation of God in scripture? Um, because someone can say that God is leading her into a relationship with a man that is already married. You know, because um, a lot of people in Orthodox Christianity completely reject all our Pentecostal New Testament things as very subjective. And they rather choose that, hmm, um, God doesn't speak to us like, like the way you people in Pentecostal setups are saying. And, and the reason for some of that kind of thinking is that someone can genuinely wake up and say, God is leading me to go into a relationship with this man who's already married. God told me that his wife is going to leave him. And these kind of things I'm telling you are not story, made up stories. These are things that have really happened by Christians who obviously are not far into that process of renewing of the mind. So that kind of revelation already fails the first test which is that it doesn't line up with the self-revelation of God in the Logos. Okay, Golda, your question. You know, you're talking about um, the Bible, okay, like what you hear, what you want to, okay, most of the time, so we want to find out things. It's mostly about our lives and situations and all of that. Mm -hmm. Now, for example, I'm trying to decide, for example, a school to go to. Mm-hmm. How do I decide that that's, the Bible is not categorically going to tell me go to this school or go to that school. Shake it. Yeah, exactly. You know how you tell yourself sometimes, okay, um, if you want, if it is your will, I do that sometimes. I'm like, okay, God, if it's your will, let me scale through this process and this process. But if not, let mm-hmm. me just not go through. Okay. So I feel like, okay, if I get through this, okay, that's probably God's will. That's why it's allowing that to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so how do you find that with this, like having to actually prove with the word of God about certain things that are not actually like, yeah. spiritual so spiritual somehow in my notes here Golda, i have i have a five-step um recommendation for proving the will of god and that it lines up with the self-revelation of god in scripture right okay. it's only it's only number one, number one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but but then again because the scriptures are, are inspired by the breath of god sometimes i feel like we don't really understand what that means if something came from God, it means that thing is as deep as God. So that even though that thing may be addressing one thing, or it may be addressing Jabez and his situation, for example, okay. God, has, God has captured the experiences of millions of people in different generations into that one word. That's what it means by it was breathed by God. It was inspired by God. So that it's possible that as you're trying to make that decision, the Holy Spirit can lead you to a particular verse. And even though that verse is not talking about Harvard University and what degree to study, the the life that is flowing from that verse will indicate very clearly to you what the mind of God is for that situation. But that's, of course, if God decides to speak to you through that medium. That means. Yeah. And because that's the second thing I was going to say. So after you ask, does it line up with the self-revelation of God in the Logos? The next thing you have to ask is, does it line up with the spirit of God inside of me? And there there are many ways the spirit of God moves in you, right? He can show you a dream. He can show you a vision. He can give you a knowing, a knowing. That's the strongest one. He can give you a sense of life. I think that's what to call it, a sense of life. 
that's what that's how that's what we saw in Romans chapter eight. Um, the spirit of witness it can give you a witness within. It's personal. It's private. You know, a lot of people are used to receiving external prophecies that there's no witness inside of them that this thing is what God is saying to me. They are most likely hearing it for the first time. They're one of two things. Either your spiritual life is not healthy enough that God didn't even hint you at all about this revelation or what you're hearing is not really for you because the will of God begins on the inside. That's why he wants to dwell on the inside. So it has to line up with scripture and it has to line up with, with your heart. It means that God cannot force you to get married to someone, for example. He has to do a work in your heart, a work of love. And that work of love is what opens you up to the possibility of marrying this person. How he does it, I cannot explain to you because it's organic to each person. So that's the next check. And a lot of times when you're trying to make these kind of career decisions, there's going to be a witness. Of course, I understand that we don't have time to press into how the different sources of the witness of the spirit and this is one of the things that is affected by how far we are in the renewing of our mind. Because I can tell you that what it took me three, four years ago to know that, okay, X is the will of God and Y is not just by myself. It doesn't take me that long or that much anymore now in 2021. And it will be even better as I continue in my work with God. So that's the second check. The, the, the third check, which I think is by far the most important, is has it become has it been confirmed by two or three witnesses and i think this is the one that we often overlook as pentecostal christians because we are convinced that we have the holy spirit that he can talk to us and so oftentimes we just run off on a tangent the fact is that the holy spirit will plant mentors around you people whose um, spiritual understanding and they may not even have as much spiritual understanding as as you but in the topic that you're dealing with, they may have more experience than you. You know, somebody may not be a prayer warrior, but if the person is married and has stayed in marriage for 10 years, I can assure you that the person has things to say to you, right? That you cannot know because of the natural limitations of your mind. And so the question is, has it been confirmed by two or three witnesses? Because that's, that's what that's the principle of scripture that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, um, a truth is established. And so don't be afraid to, to, to like to confide in friends and mentors and think through the decision with people and allow yourself to find confirmations. Because when God told Abraham, leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you, you realize that the land didn't have an address. It's God who will show him. So Abraham's 24-7 life is lived in a waiting position. He, um, he can be in the field grazing with his sheep and then um, a fellow if a fellow shepherd just says something random and as soon as that shepherd says that thing the life of god in him just just moves and he senses that no no this thing is not just a conversation this is the next direction that's it was through those little organic movements that god led abraham right so that's the third check has it been confirmed by two or three witnesses if god is calling you to a ministry you sense it strong in your heart. Ensure that there is a confirmation from scripture. There's a testimony of, like, this, like the scriptures is one of those witnesses. There's a testimony of scripture. There can, there can be a scripture that speaks about that experience. If God wants you to go for your masters, 
he's not going to leave you alone when you go. So he can give you a scripture that will be your anchor. That's a testimony. And there must be a confirmation. And the fourth thing, which is probably a big one, is that um, is you have to ask yourself, is God asking me to wait or to go? And this is where, you know, in the Old Testament, they had these yes or no questions. And they were answered using an instrument called the yumim and the tumim. The yumim and the tumim was almost like tossing a coin and say, okay, God, this, I'm your priest. I'm going to toss this coin. <laughs> Anywhere that it drops, that's your will for me. And so the way Saul knew that God rejected him is that even the yumim and the tumim were not answering Saul. As basic as that level of discernment is, wasn't answering Saul. And we see this principle in David's life, always asking God, should I go? Should I pursue? Will I overtake? Will I recover all? It's one thing to discern the will of God, that, okay, God wants me to be a preacher. But oftentimes we don't press to understand the timing of that word. And, and we oftentimes take, up in the, take off in the strength of the flesh. And the result of that is that you run out of gas at some point because something can be the will of God for you. But if it's the will of God for you, it means it's God himself that has to fund it. And if God is going to fund it, it means it's going to have to happen in God's time. So you need to ask, is God asking me to go or to wait? And this is a simple yes or no question. Personally, I, I don't believe that in yes or no questions, you can pray for one hour in tongues without knowing the answer. I'm just stretching it to one hour, depending on how long it takes you, you know, to hear this kind of answers. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, one hour. Because it's a simple yes or no question. The, the, the sense of life of the spirit, which we're not going to talk about, those channels will flow. But if, and the fifth and final one is, regardless of what the answer is, yes or no, what can I do today regardless of the outcome, right? You see, sometimes you meet people like, all of us are probably Nigerians because quick is not on the corner. Right? You meet people who wait and ask them, what are you doing? They say, I'm waiting on God. And what that means is that they, are, they have suspended their lives and are in a very passive state. <laughs> it's not the will of God, I can assure you, for you to be in a suspended passive state and your life has paused in the place of waiting, as it were. The question is, whether or not the answer to my question is yes or no, what can I do today? If, 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 if God doesn't want me to start this music ministry today, at least I can start taking trainings today. I can start doing this kind of job today. There's always something that God has for you today. And it is in the place of doing that God meets you with more instruction. So the last instruction that God gives you, stay in that place and be doing it. And ensure that you're productive at it until the next instruction that releases you into the next season comes. Don't allow your life to be in a particular limbo, state of limbo and you call that state waiting because it's not the will of god for you okay so now that we have come full cycle does this make sense yes i'm oh, sorry can you liken number four to fleecing then the so one what? that gives fleecing like fleece yeah. fleecing. you tell god like a sign abby yes <laughs> so if if somebody brings me red roses, then it's him that I must marry. Okay. I would strongly advise that you take big life decisions on those kind of. Remember, it's there's a reason why it's number four, right? 
it comes after the first three. Because if you remember when God sent Moses, he asked him all kinds, Moses asked him all kinds of questions that, or gave him all kinds of excuses, you know, that I'm a stammerer, see, I can't go. In fact, he kept talking until the Bible says that God was angry with him finally. It was then that God now told him, okay, you're going to meet your brother. <laughs> He's going to come meeting you with something. And I'm saying this because sometimes we can begin to play games with God. And I've tried to play these games before. That's why I can tell you. And I can assure you that 99% of the time, he's not in those games. Especially when you're single, you're like, ah, God, if this sister smiles at me, then I know that you are leading me. And then 10 sisters smile at you one day. And then you just realize that God is not interested in your game. Because like the second one says, are there two or three witnesses? If two or three witnesses have confirmed that it is your waiting season as regards the issue of marriage, <laughs> Whatever you get as your yes or no is irrelevant. If that's the prophetic word that you have that, okay, because God has given me such a word before that in this five-year span, I don't need you to be in any relationship. I'm preparing you for something different. Whatever I do outside of that word is not going to help me. Does that make sense? Yes, okay. Maybe Mary writes here that the waiting time is not a wasting time. Wow. That's a very good way to put the, the fifth point. Mm. Golda, does it answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So we can move to verse three now. Sure. Verse three. For I say, through, oh, should I start? Yeah. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, mm -hmm. but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Yeah. If you're like me, you are going to quickly begin to wonder, or maybe just read to verse five, since we take those three verses together. Okay, okay reading to verse five. Verse four says, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Yeah, thank you. If you're like me and you read this kind of scripture, you're going to wonder why Paul jumps from talking about your body and your will of God to start talking about grace, right? And the fact that we, we belong to one body which is why part of what we want to do in our Bible study is to contextualize the scriptures before we apply them. We need to put them in the original context. So notice that we've seen two heavy molecules of the kingdom of God. The first one is the mercies of God. It's, it's, it's our motivation for consecration. It's our motivation for, for service, for presenting our bodies, right? The second one is the perfect will of God. It is it is the will of God that is when the will of God is done in a man's life that God is satisfied. You know, everything in the gospel that God does satisfies us. What is in the will of God that God is satisfied. And But if you also notice, Paul is kind of addressing the idols that existed in Rome because part of why he says present your bodies is that like we have seen, sex was one of the idols of that culture, just like it is in many cultures today. Um, it was... It, it was and an, an open and, and, a promiscuous, and a promiscuous culture. The second idol that if you would just walk around the city of Rome, like I was doing today, 
you will notice was the idol of social class or, or status or worth, or even if you like in 21st century terms, individuality, right? Um, because in the Roman empire, like your social, there were many social, there were many strata of social classes and your social class was, was determined by your ancestry. So like Shakespeare said, if you were born with a silver spoon, then you're automatically in a particular social class. Um, it could also be determined by the census rank. Remember Caesar Augustus um, who, who ordered the census in the time of Jesus. Those kind of census <laughs> segregate people by their social class based on, based on their political privileges, based on their wealth, financial wealth. Um, social classes was also by gender. Let's not forget that women were very heavily discriminated against in this culture. Um, and of course, by um, it was determined by citizenship. We saw in the right in the life of Paul that certain things that would have happened to him if he wasn't a Roman citizen could not happen to him because he was a Roman citizen. And basically, what Paul is saying is that now that you understand the, the concept of your body and the will of God, the next thing I want you to understand is that those, those kind of categories are incompatible with the gospel of God because he's talking to Christians who are living in the context of Rome, who are pursuing the aeon of Rome. And he's saying that it's incompatible with the, with the, with the government of God because at its heart, at, at the heart of the gospel is the principle of the corporate life, the principle of interdependence. And the only way, if you at all want to categorize men in the kingdom of God, is by the grace that is on them. That's the only way to categorize. You don't categorize by who has most, the, the most money or who has whatever, but by the grace that is on them. And this brings us to the third heaviest molecule of the kingdom of God after the mercy of God and the will of God is the grace of God. Everything that we are, that we will be, that we will become in the kingdom of God is because of this principle of grace. When we make the principle of the grace of God, um, we don't have any more recourse in the kingdom of God, but there's no other basis upon which to separate Christians. And if you look at what our culture, our Christian culture has become, we have basically violated this principle because if you, I mean, I'm in Rome, which is the home of Catholicism, for example, you've seen how one individual can be elevated almost, not almost, virtually to the point where he is also God. You know, people take the word of X sometimes superior, if you ask some people, this practice you are, you, are, you are practicing, where is it found in scripture? They tell you that person X proposed it. And the word of the person is, 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 is higher than anything else. And sometimes um, if you see how a Pope, let's just use the word, a Pope, right? Is selected. It's not according to grace, it's according to vote. Paul says in the kingdom, we identify man, we identify men by the grace that is upon their lives. And Paul wants you to remember that you exist in a corporate context. You know, this affects the third, the third and test for proving the will of God that I said, mentioned earlier, which is that if you ignore the fact that God places you in a corporate context, you might hear, you might hear something that you say is the will of God, but you don't know where your humanity has become mixed with what you said you had. And you, you may just veer off on another tangent. You exist in a corporate context. And even though God is going to deal with you individually, a lot of your dealings, the things that will actually make you grow are going to happen in that corporate context. 
Um, and Paul, what he does here is that he gives us three timeless principles. I call them timeless principles for operating within a corporate context. And, and when I was studying this, I realized that um, these principles primarily um, um, are, are applicable in the corporate context of the body of Christ. But actually you can, because these principles represent the mind of God for corporate living, you can extrapolate these principles into any kind of corporate context and you would, it, they would work because this is God's template for existing in corporate life. The first thing Paul says is, I say through the grace given to me. So he's saying that the reason I'm talking to you like this is not because I'm older than you in age or because I'm poor, but just because of the grace given to me. Of course, the grace is referring to here is not the grace of salvation, but the grace of apostleship is that grace that enables him to talk like this. He says, I'm saying to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one in measure of faith. The first principle for operating in a corporate context is to have a healthy view of yourself, to have a correct view of yourself, to have a balanced view of yourself, whether it's in the body of Christ or at work or anywhere. And this is what I call self-awareness. Self-awareness is a skill that all of us are going to need to master as we relate with the body of Christ and as we relate with any corporate context that we find ourselves in. And it's important to notice that there's a difference between self-awareness and self-absorption, being absorbed with yourself, which is what we see in today's culture. It's all about um, how I feel about things, how things hit me, how things affect me, my own opinion, my own truth, even <laughs> like we hear in our generation, such absurd things like my truth, you know? Um, self-awareness is not the same as self-consciousness. Right. And what's the difference? Like we've said, self-consciousness intrudes, like points the points the, the the torchlight into self and elevates self as the most important thing. But self-awareness is simply understanding your strengths. This is what I'm good at. This is what where God graced me. Your weaknesses. This is what I'm not good at. This is what I need to work on. Right? Your opportunities also. These are the opportunities I have. In, in, in popular business terms, they have something called um, a SWOT analysis, right? Um, yeah. And that's what self-awareness needs to be because I've seen some people that want to negotiate for a salary at work and they are not aware of where they are at in terms of um, the way, in terms of whatever strata the company might have for their, for their promotion schedule, for example, what the company even offers and where their own skills are at. A lot of people overrate themselves, for example. Um, and a very common one too is that a lot of people underrate themselves. But the reason why you need to know your strengths is that that's where you should focus on. You should build on your strengths. It's very easy for us to see something in the body of Christ that we like and we begin to pursue it. Oh, I like the prophetic gift that is on the life of Stephanie. It makes her so spiritual. I want that. Meanwhile, what is on my life is a teaching gift. It's important to be aware of your strengths. And it's also important to be aware of your weaknesses, but um, don't be aware of your weaknesses in a way that it limits you, right? In a way that it overwhelms you. You know, like for me for a long time, I found it very hard to take criticism before. 
right? Because anytime someone criticizes me about something specific, I become self-absorbed. That's my own weakness. I become self-absorbed in that criticism. I'm like, hmm, so me, I can do this thing. And I start thinking, ah, ah, I must have really messed up. Oh. You know, you become, you begin to go down into that dream. I can tell you that self-absorption is a kind of pride. Because basically you're saying, hmm, I'm a perfect person. How come I have weaknesses? And then you become sad because you have weaknesses. Meanwhile, if you really know the gospel, the gospel is primarily about how none of us is worthy. And it's the grace of God that makes us worthy. So it's not, it, it shouldn't throw me off balance that somebody came to me with feedback. The fact that somebody came to me with feedback that might not be very positive only proves one thing. It proves that I'm human. It doesn't make me less human. And I, and I ought not to fully engage myself in that kind of thinking. That's a healthy self-awareness. I accept the feedback, even though sometimes it may not come in the right way, but I accept it because as terrible as it might be, there's always some, some element of truth in it. I'm, I'm very constructive about, about feedback. I accept that I'm flawed. Apart from self-absorption, of course, the other way to respond to feedback is to be arrogant. You know, and to just dismiss and say, ah, this person cannot be the one talking to me. I'm supposed to be better than this person or something like this. And if you operate like that in the body of Christ, you will miss out on a lot because God is going to invest grace in people that are not perfect. If you look at Nigeria, you understand what I'm talking about. He's going to invest grace in people that you don't want to submit to. He's going to invest authority and leadership in people that have weaknesses because that's how loving God is. That's how patient God is. He wants us to be reasonable. And part of the ways that he, 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 he brings us to the place where we become reasonable is that he gives us great and precious promises. That's what Second Peter chapter 1 says, that by these promises, we become partakers. And so God can invest grace on an imperfect vessel. And if all you're seeing is the vessel and not the grace, you miss out on what God has for you. So the first thing in operating in a corporate context is to, is to have a healthy view of yourself. The second thing is to have a healthy view of other people. That is, have the ability to discern and acknowledge the, um, the capability and the role that others play. Feel confident to say that, okay, this person is good at this thing and probably better than me at it. So I, so I, I, I freely defer to you on these matters. Of course, I will do my own checks but I defer to you. If someone does something properly, <laughs> have, have enough um, self-confidence to, to praise them and to acknowledge their work and to remember that all of us are functioning in one body and we don't all have the same functions. And that puts us in an interdependent context or in a complementarian context. That word complementarian is very um controversial in theology, but I'm going to use it because it, it fits best in the context of marriage. You know, husband is not supposed to <laughs> try to take over what wife does best and vice versa. It's important to have a healthy view of others. Sometimes people make mistakes and we find it so hard to forgive them as if, as if they were supposed to be perfectionists, right? And I won't lie to you, I struggle with this sometimes myself. Um, but a, an important principle for putting a corporate context is have a healthy view of people. The Bible says that Jesus knew what was in man. So even though some people came to make him king, 
he did, the Bible says he didn't give himself to them. Because what would have happened is that Jesus would have raised his hopes. <laughs> and down the line, they would have proven themselves to be, to be men. And you know, one of the things that men do is that we lie. And what lying means is that we say things that we don't often have the capacity to do or the capability to do. We change our minds, unlike God, for example. But if I understand that I'm dealing with men, and men can be upset, you know, men can be angry, men can be frustrated, men can be weak, men can be strong also. It enables me to operate in that context. And then the third principle is not explicitly stated, but it's here in the final verses we read verse six and verse seven, which is get busy and occupied with the grace that God has given you. Your life will never move from A to B until you keep this principle. Remember that this principle is also the fifth one for discerning the will of God. Like, And Mary summarized it to say that waiting time is not wasting time. If you don't get busy with the gift, with the investment of God in you, you're going to be perplexed by the growth of other people while you remain stuck in one direction. It's possible to, um, for us to murmur, for us to complain about things that are not perfect, or for us to even be passive about our Christianity and just wish for the day when we are going to reach a particular level, right? And this kind of attitude would only create inertia, like, like a blockade in your life, in your personal growth, and it will affect ultimately your effectiveness in a corporate context. I see that some people sometimes get so overwhelmed in church politics that they cannot be effective as Christians in that context, or not even in church politics, in work politics. Oh, this person is resigning. This person is not happy with the other one. And you forget that the only thing that you can take out of that situation is the fruit of your own effectiveness. Because if worst case scenario happens in any situation, the only thing you get out of it is, did you give your all? If you give your all, then you can never lose in that situation. Because in the worst case scenario, you go with the experience and knowledge and expertise that you have gained from getting busy with the grace that is in your life. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Any questions or follow up to that before we move on? Because now we're getting into the meat of it, but <laughs> we only have 20 minutes. God will help us. Because now Paul begins to now elaborate on the gifts of grace. And it's my desire tonight that um, each of us will locate ourselves somewhere here. These are not gifts of the spirit, like Paul lists in, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because if you notice the gifts of the spirit are given. So it means the Holy Spirit can decide not to give you because it's given. These are gifts of grace, meaning that as long as you have grace operating in your life, one of these horns will find expression through your vessel. Because if the third principle of operating the body means get occupied with the grace that is on your life, then let's look at this list so that we can find ourselves somewhere and then close there, okay? Verse 6 to 8. Verse 6 to 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If, prof if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with, li with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Okay. 
So you can see the third principle here, right? Having gifts, let us do what with the gifts. Let's use them. Okay. Let's, let's avoid the inertia that makes us think that we want the gift to be perfected to a certain level before they are shown. He says, let us use them. Although he says, let's use them in proportion. Since they are always not at the level where God wants them to be. So let's not force ourselves into a level that we are not. For example, he says prophecy, right? He says, if, if, you, if that's the grace that flows into your life, meaning that anytime you pray, God begins to show you pictures or he begins to show you images of people, whether it's through the dream or it is through um, visions or, or however it is that he shows you those pictures. Because when God really gets ready to speak in the prophetic, he uses pictures, right? Of course, some of us receive words like me, sentences in my head. Um, but I think that has a lot to do with the fact that my area is primarily teaching. But the prophetic is very pictorial. And since if you notice that that grace is on your life, that if God wants you to do something, you see a picture of it. Whether the picture is in your mind that God shows, plans that picture, or is in your spirit. This is what you're supposed to do is to prophesy. But remember to do so in the proportion of to our faith. This is where um, the prophetic gets polluted a lot, that it doesn't happen in the proportion of our faith. Because a lot of people see prophetic pictures, but don't even understand what it means. It means that the proportion of faith is not big enough, right? Um, in, in, in this gift of prophecy, we, we have to stay, like I've mentioned, within the boundaries of what God has told us and shown us. Whether or not he paints a full picture. If God showed you an eagle flying when you prayed about something, that's all he showed you. <laughs> You're going to have problems when you try to extrapolate or go beyond that. If that's all he showed you, it means that your proportion of faith has not gotten to the point where, where you can handle more. So when you want to prophesy, the only thing you have to prophesy is that God showed you um, an eagle flying and trust God for an interpretation. But the question that follows, which is a good question is, as someone who has the grace of prophecy, right? How do I increase the proportion of my faith? Because there are certain labors that you're supposed to engage that if you engage those labors, you just notice that the measure of your faith, the proportion of your faith is going up. And for each gift that's listed here, that labor is different, right? Um, in the prophetic, the primary, the primary labor that increases your measure, your proportion is the, is the ministry of intercession. Because what intercession does is that it takes you into intimacy with God. You want to pray his prayers. You want to touch the feeling that's on his heart. You want to touch the thoughts that are on his mind. So, so you lay aside your own, your own feelings and ideas and you just focus on him until you. You know, that's how a lot of, a lot of um, the prophecies we read in the Old Testament goes. God brought the prophet into a sphere where he was touching the heart, that, where he was touching the feeling that was on God's heart. And when he opened his mouth, the words began to flow. Who has believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall come like a root out of dry ground. Those fresh words came because burdens were contacted. And so any prophet that doesn't spend time in the place of intercession will end up, because of the gift, having pictures, but not having meanings, interpretations, not knowing how to follow through. A sure way of increasing your measure in the prophetic is to focus on intercessory prayer. It's as if, like the picture I have for intercessory prayer, that anytime you are kneeling before God interceding, it's as if heaven is beaming a light on you. 
and every resource you need to prosecute that ministry effectively, God will grant it to you. The next labor, if you have the gift of prophecy, is to labor in the scriptures. Because the primary source of prophecy is what Peter calls the word of prophecy. Because sometimes you might see something that you don't understand, but if your understanding of scripture is, is where it should be, God can point you to a scripture and tell you that what you saw, this scripture interprets it. And then when you go to that scripture, you now have words to give expression to what you saw. So anyone who senses this gift, if you want to increase the proportion, is to, is to intercede. When God shows you something, you hold it in prayer until that body leaves you, and then you labor in scriptures. You, you become a friend of the scripture so that you stay within the boundaries of what is acceptable to God. Because some people have seen some prophetic pictures that when we scan the scriptures, you're like, hmm, this prophetic picture you saw, it's not consistent with the mind of God as revealed in scripture. The next thing, the next gift that Paul mentions here, um, just let me know at any point because I have to hurry if you have any question about any of these gifts. The next gift that Paul mentions here is the gift of ministry. Uh, and basically another word for ministry here is serving, the gift of service. Um, because the word here is, is, is diaconition, something like this, which is which um, has as is, is a compound word that one of the root words is, is um, diaconion, which is the word for deacon, who is basically someone who serves. And this is an all-encompassing gift. It's saying that part of the gift of grace is that the Holy Spirit will commit a particular arm of service to you or will call you to a particular arm of service. So, for example, he might call you to intercede. Like, for example, for me, I know that in my church, the place, like the thing I do in the church I attend where grace is poured is when I intercede. I can tell myself that I'm a tech person. I want to go to the technical and be playing with the projector and with the slides because I can do it. But the place where God has invested grace is in the prayer team. That's a ministry. That's a, he's calling me to stay in that place and to labor in that place. God can call you to usher, to serve tables. That's what happened in Acts chapter 6 where the apostle says, said to them to sort the problem with the widows, to select among themselves people that could serve tables, that could be ushers. It's, it's a ministry. He can call you to take care of kids. You know? Um, in the old King James, the way he puts it here is not really let us use. Let us use it in our ministry. And even though this is a correct rendition, it says let us wait on our ministry. Let us wait on it. The counsel that Jesus gives us is wait on your service. Don't despise that thing. Maybe God has called you to take care of teenagers and you're like, nobody's seeing these teenagers. They're not even responding positively to what's happening. And Paul says, let us wait on our ministry. It's in that place that God will increase your measure. It's in that place that God will come and pick you and promote you. The same way that David was at the backsides of the desert, taking care of sheep. And that's where, that's where the anointing found him and placed the mantle of kingship upon him. Paul says, that ministry that it, it is that God has committed to you, wait on it. Wait on it. And it's important, like, in case you're wondering, okay, what ministry is it? Ask your, ask your leaders, where can I serve? You know? what, what, is, what is it that I can do? How can I use my gift? It could be that you have a natural gift that God is staring upon your heart to use. And then begin to use it. I must say that, um, this gift of ministry is not exclusively for the mature. 
it's for every believer. Because sometimes we, we kind of teach a doctrine that says only mature people should serve. But you see, the opposite is usually the case that is as we begin to serve and take responsibility, that we grow into maturity. The only caveat to pay attention to is that it's important not to bring someone who's fresh in Christ and make serving their pr primary thing. You know, there are some churches that run that kind of model. When you come to Christ, they just put you into the line of service because they know that if you're serving, you're going to stay in the church, you're going to keep coming. The primary service ministry that every believer should do is ministering to the Lord, you know, ministering to the Lord and studying the scriptures because that's what will mature you. That's what will prolong your stay in the faith. But as long as you're doing this, your life doesn't need to be perfect. You are qualified to serve. It's in a place of service that God will visit you. And then he says, he who teaches on your teaching. And this is important because God can give you a teaching grace. It doesn't matter your level. He can give you a teaching grace. The reason why that's the case is that when you look at your life, there is always someone or a group of people that you can teach. Those people, there is always someone, whether it is whether it's your siblings or his kids or it's your contemporaries, there's always someone that can benefit from the investment of God in your life in the area of teaching. Um, but one thing about this gift I must say is that the way you know that you have this gift is that God himself is going to stir you to teach. You know, there, there are a lot of people that read their Bible more than a lot of us. But, but they don't have a stirring to teach. And you know what I mean by stirring, like a, like a prompting, like an inner movement, like um, um, the word of God in their, in, their, in their belly is not literally busting out into streams of teaching. And one of the ways you know that the grace for teaching is unused, that there'll be a stirring of God in you to teach. Um, and if you ignore this stirring and say, oh, I'm not perfect, I need to study the whole Bible more or something like this, you just realize that the grace will not grow. The grace will only grow as you use it. If you want to study the whole Bible, a good way to do it is to do it along with other people. But the grace in you will, um, will speak. Some things I want to mention about this, this particular gift, since it's something that I think that the Holy Spirit has given me, is that if you're someone that teaches, it's important to realize that you're going to be laying the foundation for the belief system of other people. Um, and so what that means is that you yourself must, must dedicate yourself to studying so that to the best of your knowledge, what you're presenting is accurate. And you must also dedicate yourself to application. Because if you, if you read the word of God, there can be a wide gap between theory and practice. And it's only when you begin to put the word of God to test in your own life that you can vouch for its efficacy. And it's only then that whatever it is you teach can be effective. So teaching is not a talking ministry. It is, first of all, a doing ministry. You, like you need to know the effect of the scriptures on your own life. And it's from that well that you can minister to others. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is given and is profitable for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You must know this ministry of the scripture to yourself because in 17 it says that the man of God might be built up. It means that the teaching anointing is primarily for the man of God. And when you allow God to walk you through the things he wants to say through you, when he begins to say them through you, they can make meaning to others. Now I need to run. Um, but before I keep running, 
Mm, can I borrow a few more minutes from us? Like 10, so that we can wrap up this gift. Okay, bye Stephanie. Um, yeah, so the third one is the, oh, I don't know what number now, but verse 80 says, he who exhorts in exhortation. Just a quick one. I know we are almost out of time, but just a quick one. What do you think is the difference between teaching and exhortation? Because there is an important difference. Okay, I feel like exhortation is like you're trying to correct something or change something. Okay, you're trying to correct and change. Okay. Yeah. What does it mean to exhort? What does it mean to exhort? Maybe exhortation is a big word. So, so um, to exhort someone is to is to encourage, right? It's to is to build up, basically. While while the teaching anointing is is focused on technical excellence, laying the groundwork for doctrine, right? And exhortation is a is a is an arm of the prophetic actually. It's an arm of the prophecy that focuses on building up other people, which is why someone can exhort you without quoting the verse of scripture, if the person has the gift, like my mom does. <laughs> she can give you an exhortation and you feel encouraged. Um, and she didn't quote a verse of scripture. Meanwhile, a teacher can come and give you the, the analysis of how what she said is true or is not true. But in the gift of exhortation, that analysis is not necessary because is the encouragement that is transferred into your soul that is needed at that point. And so anyone that God gives the gift of exhortation, God gives, blesses them with enormous speaking capacity. Is this gift of exhortation that a lot of people receive that made them motivational speakers? And you see that they excel in that ministry without even quoting scripture a lot of times and people are revived in their spirit. So if you meet some preachers, some preachers are teachers by nature, others are and have this gift of exhortation by nature. So exhortation, of course, can go with the teaching anointing. You can, you can open the scriptures and lay a biblical foundation for everything that you're saying, but it's not always the case because it's not always necessary to lay that foundation. If what you're saying is true, the Holy Spirit will bear witness. I don't know if you've heard someone speaking confidently before, but what the person was saying did not bear witness in your heart, right? Um, so it's not necessary that the person did a very nice work of dividing um, every verse to show you where everything links together, like I'm trying to do some, some, of, some of the time, but the person is able to build you. The person speaks from a fountain. Mm. Um, so like I said, the teaching anointing is more concerned with technical accuracy, but this, this is concerned with building people up. It's my conviction that the Holy Spirit gives this gift to all mothers. That's my own. I've, I've met enough mothers in my life to know that they have this gift for free from the Holy Spirit. In fact, I, I want to stretch it to say the Holy Spirit gives every parent this gift. That's my conviction, that when you begin to have children, one of the gifts the Holy Spirit gives you is the gift of exhortation, the ability to speak into the life of that child. And, you, and your words will have a different meaning and a different energy from any other random encouragement that comes from outside. And of course, what that means is that your words can also tear apart. That's why your parents' words can wound you and shape your life if they are negative words much more than anybody else's words can do. And so that's one of the 
um, weaknesses of this of people that have this kit, they must be careful with with how they allow themselves to use it. And you may ask, how do you grow in this exhortation gift? How do you excel in it? The way to, because because the gift of exhortation is a speaking gift. You need to always stuff your spirit. Let your spirit be stuffed. Let your spirit be stuffed. Be the kind of person that 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 listens to inspiring stuff that listens to messages, that stops your spirit with, with, with spirit-energized things. If you don't do that, when a situation is in front of you, you might speak out of your own emotions, which, of course, mothers and parents do a lot. And when you speak out of your own emotions, it can wound the child emotionally. But if your spirit is stuffed, you can be positive under pressure. And you can speak the word of God in the midst of um, a contradiction. Right? Um, so that's exhortation. Then the Bible says, he who gives should do it with liberality. This, this is big old King James. It's simplicity. If you're giving, give with simplicity. Um, basically, what this means is that the Holy Spirit will prompt you to give. And this giving here is a gift of grace. And I can tell you the way this gift works is that the Holy Spirit will prompt you. And he will begin to prompt you regularly. And he will possibly prompt you in one direction. He'll tell you anytime there are raising funds for children's ministry, let your money always be there. He may not trouble you like that for women's ministry or for what, but he'll just tell you that this area, even if it's five euros you have in your pocket, if you just hear children's ministry, let your money be there. You know, the, the reason the Holy Spirit deals with us like this is that um, it, it gives God a basis, this kind of obedient giving. It gives God a basis to prosper us financially. We went for NCCF National Conference in 2015, I think, September. And during one of the sessions, God told me, this particular area, anytime you hear an offering for it, just put your money there. For some people, that's a church building. If you see that a church is doing um, a building project and it comes into your ears and you have some kind of capacity, sow a seed into that work. Right. It's not something that you force to come out of you. It's not something that the preacher has to come and encourage you that give and it shall be given to you. It's, it's, a, it's a stereo from within. And he says that when you want to do it, do it with simplicity. You know, in our Nigerian context, we tell you to come to the front with your tithe and raise it up and let the whole church see you and let God see you and then prophesy over your tithe and tell your tithe to go and do this for you and do that for you. This might sound harsh to you, but in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Jesus says that if you, have, if you do that, you've received your reward. His, his, his own, his own um, suggestion for giving is don't allow your right hand to know what your left hand is doing. It's not necessary. Do it with simplicity, meaning that honor God when you're doing it. Honor the person you're, you're doing it to. Don't take a photo of it and announce to the world that, see this person, I paid your school fees. And I'll see where they are in life. You have received your reward. That, that applause that men will clap for you. That's your reward. And I'm sure you want your giving to go further. This gift of giving is, is the room that God finds to increase us financially. I need to run. Um, the next to last one is, it says, he who leads with diligence. And I can say to you that every now and then, the Holy Spirit will invest grace in one of us to lead. He will invest grace in one of us to lead. And that's the gospel of the stature of leadership. 
And he says that the way to lead people, the people of God, is to do it with diligence. We don't have time to press this, this part of the scripture. Um, and I think because of the fact that we're very much out of time, I'm going to leave this part and not try to rush over it today. And we're going to stop here. Um, okay. Yes. So as a summary, we have talked about the, the weightier matters of the kingdom. We have been able to identify three of them. The first one is the mercy of God. Let it be, let it be the motivation for all that you do. Let it be the basis of your love for God. Let performance not be the basis for the mercy of God. The next weighty matter of the kingdom is the will of God. Our lives should be, should be consumed in the pursuit of the perfect will of God. And Paul has told us that in case you don't know what the will of God is for your life, the very first one is that God wants you to be a living sacrifice. You can be sure that God wants that for your life. And we have seen that the third heavy matter of the kingdom is the grace of God that is given to you, the measure of it, the grace that is invested in your life. And I'm trusting God that um, in this season, he would, he would restore what has been lost. He will quicken every dead thing. He will bring us back to the things that really matter. And that each of us will begin to shine in the area of our grace. Amen. Jesus. Amen. Yeah. So let's just pray for five minutes, you know, or 10, and we'll be done into these issues tonight. <laughs>